Turn to two places tonight. Turn to James chapter 3 and also Romans chapter 12. James 3 and Romans 12. We have been working our way verse by verse through this uh, book of James. And we've been through a very difficult time. We're not going to let up tonight. It's going to be just as difficult as it has been. Uh, This is probably one of the most difficult and most practical parts of the book of James, and maybe even out of the whole uh, word of God. Uh, Nobody outside of Solomon himself has had more to say about the words that we use than James does. And also the effects these words have on ourselves and also on the people that we speak them to. Uh, So I know these last two weeks that we've been in chapter 3 have not been easy for us. But I also know everybody in this room, everybody listening, needs what James is telling us. Because we live in a day when our words can travel worldwide in a matter of seconds. And words and language can uh, have deteriorated to the point where things are said with no regard. Uh, Nobody is concerned about how they affect other people, how they reflect on the speaker, or how they offend God when they're spoken. Uh, The things we say and the the words that we use do have an effect. Uh, I was this past week a couple of times where somebody had said something in regard to the ministry that was discouraging to me. And I realized, you know, words have an impact. Words can be said, and they can be difficult to hear and discourage people from doing what God's called them to do. So as much as we may attempt to downplay it, minimize it, God's going to hold us accountable for the words that we use. He will hold each one of us accountable for those words. And even if later we recognize we said the wrong thing, we confess that thing, God will forgive us for it. But the effects of those words continue on even after we have confessed it, even after they've been said. Whatever damage has been done is damage that's been done. Now, one of the greatest protections, I think, against saying the wrong thing or saying hurtful things is found in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12. That's why I have you there. Because typically we say the wrong thing when somebody attacks us. When somebody jumps you about something and and offends you in some way, uh, typically our first response is to speak back. Romans chapter 12, verse 19, God gives us the perfect way to respond when somebody attacks you. Look at Romans chapter 12, verse 19. I should have turned there myself, shouldn't I? Somebody read that for me, would you? Romans chapter 12, verse 19. See, when when somebody attacks you, what you do is give it to God and let him handle it. (laughs) Instead of attacking in return and using our words to curse them, uh, James's words, uh, instead of that, uh, don't allow anybody to pull you into sin by responding in the same way to them that they responded to you. You don't have to defend yourself. If you're right, God will defend you. God will take care of those things. And he'll handle it in a much better way than we ever could. And we'll wind up not saying something that we're later going to regret or will have some kind of negative effect on somebody else. Now, James has taken this issue of the tongue to a much deeper level. Look at verse 13, if you would. James chapter 3 and verse 13. We looked at this verse last week. I want to continue on with it today. He says, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. If our conversation is not godly, if we use words that curse instead of bless, the real issue is a lack of wisdom. We lack wisdom and we lack knowledge. Now, that's how God, through James, identifies the real problem. We consider this in some detail, as I say last week. I want to continue on with that today. Notice that uh, James says here that our, our work, our wisdom, is shown by our works. Our wisdom is shown by our works. Wisdom is not evidenced by what you profess. Wisdom is known by how you conduct yourself, how you behave. And if that's the case, then I guess as you watch your society, uh, this is a society that is devoid of wisdom. <laughs> There's no wisdom out there. And sadly, many who call themselves Christians are also void of wisdom. The things that people say, the things that people do are clear evidence that wisdom is lacking in this society today. Good conversation is identified by God and his word. 
And I choose to display wisdom or not to display wisdom by how willing I am to follow God's standard of, of behavior and good conversation. I don't define that for myself. I don't do whatever it, is I, whatever it is I want to do or say whatever it is I want to say and then attempt to convince people that it's right if God says it's wrong. If God says it's wrong, it's wrong. It's not good conversation. I can't blast some other believer for some infraction that I decided they committed. I can't use my words that demean them and reduce them in the eyes of others and then explain why it was the right thing to do or why I was justified in doing it. I can't curse another believer and then say I'm operating with God's wisdom. It doesn't match. It simply doesn't work. My conversation betrays that claim. So if a believer attacks you to others or says harsh things about you to others or says harsh things to you, please realize that is an unwise believer. That believer has limited knowledge. And if we choose to do that, it says the same thing about us. Now, look at verse 13. He says, out of a good conversation, his works with meekness of wisdom. Look at that word meekness there. Now, do you know what that word means in the context? It means talking about others. In talking about others, you should have your anger under control. Control your anger. No matter how offended you may be, no matter how wrong that other person is for what they've said, we cannot allow our anger to have any part of the response we give back to them. And if I do that, I'm showing the limited wisdom and the limited knowledge that I possess. We've talked about this before. I'm not going to be labored tonight. But if a believer wants to show Jesus Christ to their world, they really need to have their anger under control. They really need to have their anger under control. Uncontrolled anger is a clear indication that our spirit, and not God's spirit, is controlling us. Unsaved people operate with their spirit in control. That's how unsaved people operate. That's the only spirit they have, is their own human spirit. When people talk to me, they need to see God's spirit controlling me. And if I display anger in my words, if I verbally unload on somebody in anger, all they're going to see is me, and I'm going to cloud the image of God. I won't be Jesus Christ in my world. And so my conversation, my way of operating, the speech I use among other people should be with weakness. Accepting whatever comes and not choosing to fight back in anger or respond in anger back to them. By the way, something to consider. When you have a difference with some other believer, it's very possible you might be wrong. Now, I know that's a difficult concept to pick up on, <laughs> but it's very possible they're right and you're wrong. It's just possible. I realize in the conflict, we don't want to believe that. We don't want to consider that, but it might actually be the case. And so maybe what I need to do is put my anger aside and maybe hear what they have to say to me. I might actually be able to resolve the difficulty if I'm able to do that. But I will tell you this. If I allow anger to control me, if anger is in my response, the opportunity to resolve that situation is going to be lost. I've done a lot of marital counseling over the years in my counseling career, and I will tell you what destroys marriages more than anything else is anger responses toward each other. That anger gets in the way, and you can't resolve something when there's anger involved because anger makes us defensive. We, we, we stand our ground. And when the anger is put aside, we can respond in a different way and actually work through a situation and resolve what's going on instead. If I really want to resolve a situation and not perpetuate the conflict, I set my anger aside and I allow myself to listen. That greatly increases the chances that there's going to be resolution to that difficulty. Now, look at verse 14. But if you have bitter envy and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. Now, what these two verses do, verses 14 and 15 do, is contrast wisdom with the wisdom of verse 13. 
verses 14 and 15 give us human wisdom, give us worldly wisdom. And the two characteristics there that define that wisdom are bitter envying and strife. Bitter envying and strife. Now, envying is nothing more than wanting something that somebody else has. Bitter envying is, is begrudging somebody for having what I want. It's not just that I want it, but I also am angry at them that they have it. Maybe a person has a position. Maybe they have friends. Maybe they have some sort of material possession. All that wish, things that I wish I had. Bitter envying is me wanting what they have and not being happy for them that they have it. <laughs> Bitter envying is me wanting it, what someone else has, and deciding they don't deserve to have it, or they didn't earn it, or that's not, they shouldn't have the right to have it. It's not fair that they have it, and I don't have it. I begrudge them for what they have. And what comes from bitter envying? Strife. A strife is defined in the dictionary as anger or bitter disagreement. Strife is conflict. Strife is two sides who are opposed to each other. But notice again, if you would, in that verse, the strife has been created by bitter envy. The other person has done nothing wrong. God has blessed them with something simply as, as a result of something they did, or perhaps out of his grace, he's blessed them. What they have is not wrong, and they're not flaunting it before others to make anybody else jealous. I'm just mad that they have it, and I don't. I'm ticked off about that. And so based on that, I begin to create, reason, create reasons in my mind why they shouldn't have it. I begin to build this case in my mind that, against them for not deserving whatever it is that they have that I want. And when I do that, what have I created? I've created strife between me and that other brother or sister. And strife is entirely of my own making. I created that strife by my attitude. And if I allow myself to progress down that road far enough, there's going to be two results from that. Two things James tells me not to do. Look at the verse again. Verse 14, he says, But if, there, if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. The first thing that's going to happen if I have this bitter envy and strife going on, the first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to glory. And what that means is I'm going to make myself look good and that person look bad. I'm going to elevate myself. I'm going to make the case why I should have what they have, why I am better suited for it, why I am more deserving of it. I'll begin to proclaim all my positive personality characteristics and all my abilities and all my faithfulness and all my spirituality. And I'll do that to show that although they may have what I want, the reality is I'm much more deserving of it than they are. I should be the one that has it. That's the first thing I'll do. The second thing I'm going to do is I'm going to lie. I'm going to lie. I'm going to begin to stretch the truth or make things up to make that person look bad. I'm going to tell what I know about them that is negative. I'm going to embellish it and tell it as I tell it. I'm going to make it as bad as I possibly can. Or I'll simply make up things that never occurred or things that I don't even know about or didn't occur like I think they did or as I say they did. And the whole idea of that is to make that person look undeserving for what they have and make me look more deserving. So I may not have what they have, but I can bring them down a few pegs for having it. And it gives me some satisfaction, I guess, to do that. And the end result is back to what James has talked about. Cursing is the end result. I downgrade that person. I attack that person. I lie about that person in, in the words that I use. And James makes the point one more time. Look at it, verse 15 again, verse 14. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. What he's saying is, folks, if I do that, there's something seriously wrong with my heart. There's something wrong inside. I've allowed something to get in that shouldn't be there. No matter how I want to defend it, no matter how I want to justify it, there's no getting past the fact that if I'm doing that, I've got a heart issue. I've let something in. 
And I, the only way to avoid doing that or to stop doing that is going to take a change of heart. I'm going to, have to let the Holy Spirit get involved there and change the way that heart is operating. Removing whatever influence is there, remove whatever bitterness is there that I've allowed to locate there and putting my heart again under the complete control of the Spirit of God. Understand that word wisdom there in verse 15 is simply referring to a body of knowledge that I possess. Wisdom in and of itself is neither good or bad. It just is. It's neutral. The source of wisdom or the focus of that wisdom is what places a value judgment on that wisdom. And the wisdom that I have can promote certain attitudes or certain behaviors. For example, I can have wisdom about car repair or I can have wisdom about home repair. Neither good nor bad. It's just things that I've learned and things that I know. That's not right or wrong. It just is. It's neutral in terms of moral values and produces behavior that enables me to repair a car or take care of some problem in my home. If I have God's wisdom, now there's a value judgment. That's good wisdom. That's good wisdom. Learning what God knows is always a good thing to do. And having God's wisdom is going to cause me to operate in ways that are going to be godlike and that will be motivated by him. But there's another kind of wisdom, and that's what's identified for us in verse 15. There's also wisdom that descendeth not from above. So it's not godly wisdom. It's not wisdom that, wisdom that comes down from God. It's wisdom that's earthly and sensual and devilish. Three possible sources of that wisdom. Earthly, sensual, devilish. Number one, that wisdom comes from the world. Now I'm not talking about the world as far as a body of knowledge. I'm talking about the world system. I'm not talking about knowledge like repairing a car. This wisdom causes us to think like the world thinks, to have the world's values and the world's opinions. The second wisdom comes from my flesh. It's sensual. It's based in the fleshly needs and fleshly desires. The third one is from the devil. It, it, as he influences what I think about. The devil can't make you think things. He can't get into your head and make you think things. What he can do is set up situations for you and bring information around you that will influence how you think. And that's what he does oftentimes. Uh, those, so there's devilish wisdom. And you know what devilish wisdom is all about. We talked about that. It causes me to act and speak in ways like the devil does. How does the devil speak? The devil is the father of lies. And the devil accuses the brethren. So if I do either of those two things, that is devilish wisdom. If I'm accusing brethren or if I'm lying, that's from the devil. That's how he speaks. The clear indication is when I speak in ways that are harmful or divisive or attack somebody else, that's not godly wisdom. That's coming from somewhere else. That's not wisdom that is from above. That wisdom has its source in the world or the flesh or the devil, and none of those things are honoring to God at all. So when I begin cursing another believer, I may not give any thought to it at the time, but I need to be aware that is not God's work being done at that point. God's not in it. When I begin to curse another believer, those words are not spoken under God's influence. Those words came from somewhere else, and I let it happen. And no matter where else they came from, the source is not Christ-honoring, and no matter how I might try to convince myself or others that I was doing God's work when I did it, I didn't do God's work when I spoke those words. If I'm cursing another believer, that is not God's work. <laughs> that is not God's work. Now, those are not words of edification. Those are words to tear people down. So, the words that I speak need to be words that are edifying, words that are exhorting, words to, to, to help brothers and sisters out. That's how I need to speak. If I'm not speaking in that way, if I'm tearing brethren down or destroying their testimony or destroying their reputation, that is worldly or fleshly or devilish. It's one of the three. And that's the only choice that we have. <laughs> it's one of those three. 
They were spoken because I was envious about somebody else, uh, what they had, and it made me feel better to tear them down. Human nature is like that. If I can't have what they want, I'll drop them a few pegs anyway. I'll take their knees out from them at least and make myself feel better in the process. And that's what words do. That's what words can do. Now look at verse 16. Verse 16 tells us what comes from words of, uh, that are words of cursing, words that come from the earth or the world or the flesh or the devil. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. What comes from words of cursing? What comes from words from those three sources? Uh, confusion and evil working. That's what comes from it. Now, I want to take you back to the Garden of Eden. You remember the Garden of Eden back in Genesis chapter 3. Satan had an axe to grind. Uh, he was cast out of heaven because he uh, rebelled and he lost his position. He lost his position because he wanted something that God had. He was envious. He wanted God's position, and God wouldn't give it to him. So envy was at the source of his attitude. What resulted? Well, strife resulted. Because what happened was Satan rebelled against God and was cast out of heaven as a result. So now Satan has dropped down to the earth, and he appears in the garden. And when he appears in the garden, what's his frame of reference? His frame of reference is envy and strife. That's what got him there. And so he shows up in Genesis chapter 3. The first words ever recorded that Satan ever spoke are these four words. Yea, hath God said. The question is, did God really say it? Immediately when Satan meets that creation of God, he sets up contention between God and his creation. He sets up strife. He creates a climate where the creation begins to question God and question God's motives and question God's goodness. And then he says this in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 5, For God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be, to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and also gave to, unto her husband, and he did eat. Satan says, God's holding back on you. There's something he don't want you to have that's good for you. And you know what happened to Eve? She started to envy what God had that she didn't. And she saw that tree, and Satan says, that tree's going to do it for you. And the envy caused her to eat of that tree, and she gave it to her husband, and he ate as well. Don't you want to be a god, Satan said? Don't you want to eat that delicious-looking fruit? Why can't you have what God has? Why can't you be like God? And those worldly, sensual, devilish words open the door for sin to enter into this world. And you know what happened to Adam and Eve that day. They became confused and they brought into the world the first evil work. And it all started by words of envy and strife. That's how it started. It is an indisputable fact, folks, that every evil work that has been done on this earth, from the least to the greatest, has been done because somebody wanted something that somebody else had. I'm going to talk more about that next week. Somebody wanted something that somebody else had, and they took every opportunity and every action they could to get it. That's how it works. That is true of every evil work. That is what worldly, sensual, devilish wisdom creates. And when I speak words, listen to me now, when I speak words against some other believer, when I attack another believer and accuse them of something, what I'm actually doing is replaying the Garden of Eden. That's exactly what he did. He attacked God and made those folks think they weren't getting something that they deserved. Whenever you attack somebody, whenever I attack somebody with my words, I'm replaying the garden. I'm creating envying, I'm creating strife, and I'm creating confusion. That's how it works. 
We need to be aware of that. It's not just words. We might think it's just words. It's not just words. It's not just me expressing myself. It's not me just giving my opinion. It's not me just telling the truth about things. If the target of those negative words is some other believer, I am replaying the Garden of Eden, and I'm introducing into that situation confusion and evil works into the body of Christ. And we need to be careful. God protects his body. You're aware of that, right? God's very, very protective of this body. And we know what sin gives birth to. Sin gives, sin gives birth to another sin. And another sin, and another sin, and another sin. Evil works are the result of confusion and envying and strife. My cursing of some other believer can be the starting point for all sorts of sin to enter into the body of Christ and to contaminate some other believer or some group of believers. And again, I'm going to tell you, you do not want to be the one to get that process going. God will deal with that. One way or another, God will deal with that. It is a much wiser choice if some believer has offended you or harmed you. Uh, you present that case to, your belie- to that believer. You do your best to resolve that with the other person. And if all those efforts fail and it can't be worked out, put it in God's hands. Let him deal with it. He'll deal with it. Just give it to him. Don't do anything more with it. Just give it to him. And if you, if you or I try to handle that thing in any other way, we put ourselves in grave and dangerous place by doing that. Now, with all that said, look at verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above, now he's talking about godly wisdom again, that wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. This is wisdom that is from above. This is godly wisdom. And the wisdom he mentioned last, this is the wisdom we mentioned last week that comes from the Holy Spirit as God puts his word into our hearts. This wisdom is not tainted by anything sinful. So James is going much deeper now. Uh, What James has done here, he's labeled the tongue as the culprit. Okay, the tongue is the problem. But in reality, the tongue is not really the problem. There's a deeper problem than that. The tongue has a direct connection to the heart. Your tongue has a connection, uh, some nerve ending that goes right down into your heart and my heart as well. And so whatever wisdom I allow to operate in my heart is what's going to be produced by my tongue. So let's go down through this list as we close tonight, and let's just see what God-given wisdom produces. Uh, James is trying to make the case to us, folks, don't use worldly wisdom, don't use fleshly wisdom, allow God's wisdom to operate, and here's the reasons why. First of all, that kind of wisdom is pure. That simply means without contaminants. There's nothing defiling in something that is pure. So God's wisdom is undefiled. There's nothing in God's wisdom that is harmful or detrimental. If you have God's wisdom, you have something that can only help you and not hurt you. There are two things in existence today that are pure by nature. Two things that are pure by their very existence. Uh, For example, my soul is pure today, but my soul did not come into this world pure. My soul came into this world attached to my flesh, and this flesh is filthy. My soul was made pure when it was washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. If you're saved here tonight, you've got a pure soul. But that soul was not pure when you came up with it. That soul became pure when God saved you and washed you and cut that soul away from your body. And now it's free and pure and clean. That's the kind of soul you have. There are only two things in existence today that are pure without any kind of outside work being done to it. I'm going to have you turn to the book of Job, if you would. Go to Job chapter 4. And let's look at these two things that are pure by nature. Job chapter 4. When you get there, look at verse 17. Job chapter 4, verse 17. 
I want you to see these verses tonight. Job 4.17 says this, Shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? There is nothing more pure than God. If he's not pure, he's not God. If God is defiled in any way, he ceases to be God at that point because defilement makes him just like us. That's why Jesus Christ couldn't sin. If Jesus Christ sinned, he couldn't die for you. He's just like you. He needed somebody to die for him. But he was pure. God is pure, number one. And then go to uh, Psalm chapter 12. Psalm 12. When you get to Psalm 12, look at a very familiar verse. Look at verse 6. So God is pure by nature. God is pure by his very existence. Psalm chapter Psalm 12, look at verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in the furnace, purified seven times. The only thing that's pure tonight, folks, is that book you hold in your hand. That book is pure, and every word in this book is pure. And I'm talking about this book right here, this book. <laughs> this book is pure tonight. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Every word of God is pure. The only clean thing you can hold in your hands is that book. Everything else is defiled. That book is pure. That book has no defilement in it whatsoever. So the wisdom that comes from God, wisdom that is found in his words, must be pure because God is pure and his word is pure. So if I take God and I take his word and I allow those things to get into my heart and begin to uh, take residence there... I can't produce words of cursing. I can't do it because God's word and God's spirit prevent me from doing that because that's the wisdom that is operating inside me. The only words I can speak are words of blessing. So the first thing James tells us is wisdom that is from above is first pure. Then notice the next thing. It is also peaceable. If God's wisdom fuels our behavior and our conversation, we're not going to create conflict. We're not going to cause fights. Now, we may disagree with each other. We may have differences on specific topics, but those are different disagreements, and those are not things that we'll create. We won't create those disagreements. They may exist naturally, and we may accept, may accept differences in each other. We're not going to make a point of those things or create a problem over them. Now, look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look at verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 3. 1 Timothy 6, 3. 1 Timothy 6.3, Paul says this, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. What's Paul saying? Paul is saying, here's a person who has ignored the doctrine of the Lord. And because they have ignored the doctrine of the Lord, they've created a dispute with some other believer on that basis. Any person who does that, who manufactures that dispute, is not operating in God's wisdom. God's wisdom is peaceable. Peace and peaceable words are the only result of God's wisdom. If I speak peaceably, God is operating. If I'm not speaking peaceably, some other spirit is operating, but not God's spirit. Back to James 3. God's wisdom also is gentle. In other words, God's wisdom does not create intentional harm. God's wisdom can cause harm, 
it can cause harm. But if that's the case, it is harm with a purpose. It's harm that is intended to have a positive effect in our lives. It was perfect wisdom, folks, that allowed Job to go through what he went through. God allowed those difficulties to come into Job's life. That was God's wisdom, you see. But God did that because he knew that Job needed some changes in his life. Job needed to be refined, and that was the way he did it. It was perfect wisdom that allowed the devil to get a hold of Job and do what he did. God did the same thing in Paul's life by allowing that thorn in the flesh. But if God's wisdom is an operation, there will be no harm inflicted for the sole purpose of causing pain or causing misery. If God's wisdom is in charge, there will be no word spoken just to pay somebody back. There will be no word spoken just to even the score. We may speak words to each other that at times are difficult to hear or shame us or convict us, but if they are spoken in God's wisdom, then the intent is for blessing and not for cursing, even if those words hurt initially. I've had believers confront me about things. They were right in doing it. Praise God for that. But they did it with the right spirit, and they did it because they wanted to see change and help me, and that's why they did it. Words that come from God's wisdom are spoken in kindness and in love and in gentleness, and not in anger, and not with any desire at all for any sort of revenge. So God's words are also gentle. Then look if you would. They're also easy to be entreated. Easy to be entreated. That word entreat simply means to follow or to pursue. It means to seek out or seek favor or seek an answer to a request. In other words, if God's wisdom is an operation, that makes that person easy to approach. If I've got a conflict with somebody and I seek their forgiveness, a person operating under God's wisdom will be open to my approach and be ready to forgive me. If I've got a difference with some other believer and they're operating under God's wisdom, as I approach them, they'll be willing to work that difficulty out with me. A person operating under God's wisdom is ready to set differences aside and renew the relationship and fellowship again if it's been hurt. If you want a good example of that, consider how God responds to you when you come to him and seek his forgiveness. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. You know when that happens, folks? The minute you confess it. God doesn't put you off for a second. When you confess that sin, at that moment, God forgives you. God is easy to be entreated, you see. God is ready to forgive. God is willing to do that. He wants fellowship restored. And that's how we are to operate as well. Uh, a person operating under fleshly or worldly wisdom seeks to hold a grudge. Know any grudge holders? <laughs> well, if you know any grudge holders, uh, they're not operating under God's wisdom. God's wisdom doesn't hold grudges. Does God hold grudges? No. If that sin is confessed, God forgets it, the Bible tells me. If a wrong is committed, that person who is uh, working under fleshly or worldly wisdom will hold that wrong over that person and use it to manipulate them or gain some sort of power over them or tear them down in the eyes of other people. Worldly and fleshly wisdom is on display whenever a person refuses to forgive somebody else who honestly is seeking their forgiveness. I've known folks like that. You ask forgiveness and they're not ready to do it and they won't do it, even though you've asked them for it. That's not godly wisdom, folks. That's some other wisdom operating. Uh, godly wisdom is on display, or rather, I'm sorry, God, yeah, godly wisdom is on display when instead of working out the hurt, rather, uh, worldly wisdom is on display when instead of working that hurt out with somebody else or keeping that hurt to themselves, the hurt individual makes sure that everybody knows exactly what happened. That is not godly wisdom, that's worldly wisdom. If I feel the need to tell somebody else how somebody else has hurt me, that is not God operating at that point. That's somebody else operating. 
So you see, what we need to do, we need to be willing and ready to forgive when a person seeks that because that shows that God's wisdom is operating. Easy to be entreated. The next one goes right along with that. Full of mercy. Full of mercy. Aren't you glad God is full of mercy? Don't you need God's mercy every moment or every day? I do. (laughs) I need his mercy all the time, and God is full of mercy. Well, you know what? Uh, Godly wisdom is full of mercy as well. It's full of the willingness to give a person what they may not deserve. They don't deserve it. Well, you didn't deserve it either. (laughs) And God gave it to you anyway. In the same way, folks, that's how godly wisdom operates. It reveals to us what God has done for us and creates a willingness inside of us to do the same thing for other people. A person who is not merciful, a person who seeks to destroy somebody else with their words, is a person who has forgotten or who has set aside how merciful God was to them. I see and read about a lot of unmerciful people. Something happens in a situation and they're willing to tell everybody about it and be as ugly as they can about it while they do it. My thought is that person has forgotten how merciful God's been to them. (laughs) That's my thought on it. I might be wrong, but I think that's true. A person who is not merciful, a person who needs to destroy somebody else with their words, has forgotten what God has done for them. Godly wisdom helps me understand God's mercy, and understanding God's mercy makes me more willing to be merciful to others, and only good things result from that. If I understand God's mercy, I show mercy to others, even when they have legitimately wronged me. I still show them mercy. Did you legitimately wrong God when, he, uh, when you sinned? Absolutely. When you came in, did he save you anyway? Absolutely. <laughs> because God's full of mercy. That's how we are to treat other people. A person who knows God and understands God's mercy will be merciful to others as well. Fine, look at it if you would. They are full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. A person exercising godly wisdom is somebody who treats everybody the same. No favoritism, everybody the same, and they're genuine when they do that. A person who has exercised a godly wisdom speaks well of everybody, even those who have wronged them in some way. Have you ever had that happen to you where somebody has wronged you or has said something about you, and you meet somebody and they start talking about that person and say what a great guy or great person they are? What do you do with that? (laughs) You know what you should do with that? You're right, they're great people, solid people, servants of the Lord, good for them. That's what you ought to do. That's what I ought to do. Because that's what the Bible tells us. We are to be without partiality and we are to be genuine. Speak kindly to others and expect nothing in return. Do it because it's the right thing to do. Worldly, fleshly wisdom is always seeking to gain something from somebody else. There's always an angle. There's always some end game uh, there as part of it. A person exercising that wisdom will say whatever they have to say to get something from somebody else, even if they don't mean it and even if it's just a reaction. They'll say it to get what they want. The bottom line is this, folks. If God's wisdom is operating, if a person is operating under godly wisdom, it'll show in the words they use and it will show in the intent behind those words. It shows. Now, we may think it doesn't, but it does. It does. And if any of the qualities listed here are not part of a person's speech, if your speech is not pure and peaceable and gentle and easy to be entreated and full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy, if that does not characterize your speech, it's not evidence in the words you use, something else is fueling your words. I'm talking to myself as well. Something else is fueling those words if those things aren't a part of it. That is how a believer should respond to every situation. 
And if you can't do it, give it to him and let him take care of it for you. I believe truly with all my heart, our flesh gets in the way and we hear what the world says to us and we take on those ideas and those propositions and we begin to believe that we have some right to say things about, to say something about things. We don't. We don't. No matter what happens in our lives, we are to be pure and peaceable and gentle and easy to be entreated and full of mercy and full of good fruits and without partiality and without hypocrisy. And if I can't do that, something has gotten into my heart that's controlling my heart. And it's not the Holy Spirit of God. And if I don't speak in that way, I'm going to cause harm to those who are the targets of my speech. And God is going to chastise me for that. I want to say to you one more time, folks, please hear me. Don't step in the way and talk about some other believer of the body of Christ. Don't do it. You are putting yourself in harm's way by doing that because God's going to take care of that thing. So when something happens, give it to him. And live like life is fine. Because it is. He's got it all taken care of. Just let him handle it. And I'm sure he'll handle it just like it needs to be handled. Praise God for that, huh? Let's stand.